We're going to go today back to our study of the book of John. And our theme for the book of John is this, life in Jesus, the Son of God. John has showed us time and again who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus is the Word incarnate. He is God in flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus has not shied away from telling people who he is. And he's shown people why he came. To bring salvation from sin. Sorry. As the Messiah, he did not come to overthrow the Roman government. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks as, as the Passion Week has unfolded. He came to defeat the kingdom of darkness. He came to bring victory over Satan and hell. He came to establish the church. And so here in John chapter 12, we've been looking at the events of the Passion Week as they unfold. And make no mistake, by the way, Jesus is coming again to rule and to reign. We were driving this week um, on our way back. And as we came into, we were getting ready to come back into Canada because we were over in New England and we came across Canada. There was a car that was going by. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> there was a car that was coming by and it had duct tape letters on the side of the car. You know, it looked like something from Beaverton. And it said on the side, or where I'm from in the South, okay? It's rednecks are everywhere, okay? But on the side of the car, it said this, God wins. And it's, you know, it's one of those things. You look at that and you're like, you know what? At the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons I'm not concerned, and neither should you be. We should do our part as good citizens and vote and do those things. But at the end of the day, it lies in the hands of God. And he's the one who will make things right. And at the end of the day, Jesus will claim ultimate victory. But here and now, he's claimed victory in our hearts, in our lives over sin. And that's what we see here in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26 today. This idea of dying to live. John records here, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you that in the word of God, we have preserved for us not just some facts or some things to increase our knowledge, but we have preserved for us who you are and what you've done. 
and we see in the word of God its timelessness and its ability to transform our lives because it is alive. It is powerful. It is a two-edged sword and it divides our hearts and souls and shows us who we are. And we pray today that you would do that. That you would show us clearly who we are and what you have done for us. For one who may be here today who has never placed their faith in you for salvation alone, you would show them once again they need you and you. For Christians today, Lord, would you stir up in our hearts conviction of sin, of things that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing or things we're not doing we should be? Would you show us how you want us to reflect Jesus Christ? Would you make us willing to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit today? May we walk out of this place different than we've come in today because we have heard the truth of your word and your Holy Spirit has applied it to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Sometimes in life, things are not always what they seem. In fact, sometimes they are quite the opposite. The team that, te- that seems poised to win the championship gets knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. The student with an average or below average GPA goes on to lead a successful business. Or the sure bet in the market <clears throat> goes bankrupt in record time. <clears throat> we experience this in our personal lives as well. The, re- the relationship that we just know will make us happy and bring us unending joy turns sour. The meeting that we dread going into that we think will go horribly wrong turns out really well. Or the neighbor that we assume wants nothing to do with us turns out to be a great lifelong friend. Things are not always what they seem to be. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes what something seems like on the surface is completely opposite of what happens or what we need to do. And as the Passion Week of Jesus continues to unfold here in John chapter 12, we observe that with God, there are many things that are not what they seem. Because in our own human wisdom and our pride and our finite knowledge, we become convinced what we know is true or what we think will happen or what we have to do. However, Jesus shows us in this passage that the kingdom of God doesn't operate according to man's wisdom, but according to God's. And that's good news for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And what you see here in the passage before us is this. Because Jesus died to pay the price of sin, I must find life in him by dying to self and placing undying faith in him alone. Jesus did die. Now, obviously, in John 12, we haven't gotten to the point of the crucifixion. What we're doing is leading up to that. But the end of the story is that Jesus did die to pay the price of sin. And he rose again to claim victory over that sin for us today. And because of that, the only way to find eternal life is through faith in him. And the only way to live a Christian life that brings honor and glory to him is to die to self daily. Is to place that faith in him and then to live that faith out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the passage and what this shows us here today. In verses 20 through 22, 
you see the seekers who come to Jesus. And what's notable here is there's a Gentile presence in those who come in verse 20. It says here in John chapter 12, verse 20, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So last time, we saw the varied responses to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. John showed us that the disciples, that would include him, did not understand what they observed. (coughs) They had walked with Jesus, but they did not see that the scriptures were being fulfilled before their very eyes. Yet one day, John showed us last time, they would understand. John, one of those disciples, certainly now understood, and he shared this with his readers. Then there were the Jewish crowds. There were the thrill seekers, those who believed Jesus would fulfill their selective messianic hopes and dreams. You see, in the Old Testament, there are passages that talk about the Messiah coming to give victory to his people. And the question I have for you is, Will the Messiah come and bring victory to his people? Yeah. God is not done with the nation of Israel. We know that. We know that that God isn't done working on this earth. We know that. We know that in the end of it all, as we said in the introduction, God wins. Jesus Christ is king of kings. But what happened is, all of those passages that refer to that, those became the selected passages, right? Right? Well, this is what the Messiah is going to do. This is what the Messiah is going to do. And so passages like Isaiah 53 that talk about the smiting of the servant, that talk about Jesus' death, that talk about the Messiah being given as the lamb taken to the slaughter, they're conveniently left out, right? And we don't, they, they didn't see those or apply those. Instead, they had their own selective views of the Messiah. And so these thrill seekers celebrate Jesus' arrival. They marvel at his power. He resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And all the while, the religious leaders continue to hate him, right? They are now being prodded towards a more immediate action as they behold the scene in Jerusalem. And now, John has showed us the disciples, the seekers, the religious leaders, and now you get to verse 20 and you have a fourth group. You have here a a group made up of outsiders. They are Gentiles. John tells us that these are Greeks who had come up at the feast. Now, I've said this before, but I I like to to mention it every once in a while just to remind us. You always go up to Jerusalem. Now, that's a spiritual sense because that's where you go to worship God in the temple, right? But it's also a physical sense because Jerusalem is higher in elevation than everything else around it. So you always go up. To Jerusalem. You read in the Psalms the Psalms of Ascent that they would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. And we don't know where these Greeks are from. We do know, though, they are a unique group because they don't subscribe to the polytheistic and pagan ways of their countrymen. Instead, at the very least, these are God fearing Greeks. Now, it is possible, though it is certainly not implied or required by the, the original Greek text that these are even proselytes of the religious faith, of, of Judaism. And that, what that means is they would be complete converts adhering to every law and ritual found within Judaism. Whether they were proselytes or not, they, are recognize, they recognized the one true God 
and worship him. John tells us that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They were there to worship at the Passover feast. And this, uh, this was the stated purpose of Israel's relationship with God, that she might be a light to the Gentiles. When Solomon dedicated the temple after he built that under his rule, look what's recorded in that prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, that is the temple, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know that your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. What's the purpose of God's relationship with Israel just to be us four and no more? No. The purpose, one of the purposes of God's relationship with Israel was that they would magnify him to other people. That, that he, they would show who God is and what he has done. That they would show other people he is worthy to be worshipped and served with your life. Now the people of Israel didn't always do a good job of that, right? But God continued to prophesy the forthcoming salvation, not just to Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. When Jesus came... He came first to his own people. He came through the nation of Israel and primarily, and first and foremost to his own nation. But the salvation of God does not stop with the nation of Israel. It extends to all. And again, <clears throat> I would ask you this. How does Israel view that in her history? Well, have you ever read this little book in the Old Testament called Jonah? How did Jonah feel? about going outside of Israel to take the, nation, the name or the message of God and who he is and a message that called for repentance to a nation that wasn't Israel. He didn't feel so great about that, did he? He felt so horribly not great about it that he was willing to get in a boat and go the opposite direction, as the Bible tells us, in an attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord. I'll ask you, where is that? Where can you go? So there has always been this tension building up to this, right? We're God's people, right? We're this. We're that. And Jesus is saying salvation is not just for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles. And in fact, this group that comes in verse 20 signals the, the, the coming of this salvation. And it signals a shift in the ministry of Jesus. And it signals the, the time that is about to be fulfilled in Jesus, um, uh, the, the, the timing of Jesus' ministry. In verses 21 and 22, we see why they came. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. 
Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So we're not told exactly when this interaction takes place. It is possible that this event takes place with everything else that was going on with Jesus and the triumphal entry there into Jerusalem that we looked at last time. Um, but, or, but it's also possible that, uh, that, that, that not only these, these Greeks were trying to get into that crowd and see Jesus at that time, but it could be in one of the days after Jesus arrived in the temple in Jerusalem during the Passion Week. Because during the Passion Week, Jesus did teach in the temple on the kingdom of God. He also, by the way, cleansed the temple a second time. We read that in the other Gospels. And so if these Greeks were God-fearers, yet they were not proselytes, they had not completely committed to all the tenets of Judaism, there was only so far they could go into the temple. The court of the Gentiles was, was one of the outer courts. And so where Jesus was teaching, they would not be able to get to. Regardless, we don't know if that was where it happened or if it was in the crowd. We do know this. They came trying to get to Jesus. And as they did so, they make contact with this guy, Philip, who is one of the 12 disciples. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, and it's very likely that he spoke Greek. Maybe that's why they sought him out. Or, you know, again, I don't, I don't give into a lot of these speculations, but I kind of think maybe it's just the first guy they ran into. You know, hey, you know Jesus, right? You know, we know who you are. And to him, they make, they make this request. What is it they want to do? We want to see Jesus. Now, this is not a request of, we'd really like to know what Jesus looks like. Or, we'd really like to gawk at his power and weigh out his words. This seems to be nothing but a request to discuss salvation with him. They see in him the hope of salvation, or at least they seem to presume he can talk to them about salvation. What we see here is the attitude of seeking hearts. You see, those truly seeking salvation from sin are not looking for some type of fascination. They aren't looking for the latest way to alleviate an overburdened or guilt-ridden conscience. They aren't looking for a quick fix for their relationship troubles. They aren't trying to feel cleansed by some empty religious ritual. And these are all reasons, by the way, that people have come to supposedly to find religion or find the church over the years because they need some latest patch for their soul or their relationship or I want to feel better about myself. But a true seeker does not come for those motivations. Those truly seeking salvation seek Jesus and Jesus alone. If you would be free from your sin and shame, seek Jesus alone. If you would have hope of everlasting life, Seek Jesus alone. If you would live for the glory of God, seek Jesus alone. And if you would know new life, life eternal and life fulfilled, seek Jesus alone. This is what these Greeks do. They want to know Jesus. They want to know who he is, what he says. And this leaves the disciples in a little bit of a quandary. You have Philip who, from what we can tell here, he's not really sure what to do. And so, what does he do? Well, he goes, and he finds the most underrated disciple, Andrew. And I'm not just saying that because it's my name, okay? Okay, I am mostly saying that because it's my name. But 
Andrew is a little bit more connected to what we would call the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, right? Within the, the 12, you have Peter, James, and John, who are the closest of Jesus' 12 disciples. And who's Peter's brother? Andrew. So Philip goes to Andrew, and they've got to figure out together, what are we going to do with these people, right? What are we going to do with these Greeks who are seeking Jesus? Because they, have, they must be wrestling with their responsibility to these people who are obviously not from Israel. Jesus had made it clear in his ministry that his primary audience was to the sheep of Israel. However, he had also given hints of the coming salvation for all. And so, Philip and Andrew do that which Andrew does time and again. They go to Jesus about the situation. I want you to remember back and some things we've talked about, Andrew. In John chapter 1, the first person that Andrew ever brings to Jesus is Peter, his brother. He goes to him and says, we have found the Messiah. In John chapter 6, when you have the, 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 the 5,000, the feeding of 5,000, that, and the other passages you read about that, you know who brings the lad, the boy with the lunch? Andrew brings him to Jesus. And so here, once again, G- Andrew has others to bring to Jesus even if he's unsure what the protocol is on this. And here's the thing. Disciples are called to bring others to Jesus. Disciples are called. That doesn't mean you're responsible for their salvation, but you're called to say, hey, come and see. This is who Jesus is. Andrew and Philip bring word to Jesus here, and we hear Jesus' word regarding what is to occur. We'll see that in just a second. Therefore, It's a challenge to us. We must live our lives. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, we are his disciples. We must live our lives consumed with the things of God. Listen, we live in a world that is constantly telling us, hey, make sure you balance your priorities and you leave some time for yourself and you put everything in its proper place, right? You ever heard that before? Okay, I have three wonderful deacons here who remind me to be careful not to overburden yourself, Pastor. Be careful not to, and that's a good message, right? It's a good thing. We get that. But the context of our world even, hey, this whole idea of self-care, right? Make sure you take time for yourself. Make sure you balance this. Make sure you balance this. Make sure you, you make sure you prioritize this and that. I will tell you right now that the greatest balance of priorities you can make in life is to prioritize the things of God. That's not to say you can't do anything else in life. But the question is this, what makes me miss the things of God? Unfortunately, our time at church is often sacrificed on the altar of things that aren't very permanent. Unfortunately, sharing the gospel with other people is sacrificed on the altar of, well, I don't know what I would say or I'm too embarrassed to do something. Unfortunately, our time in the Word of God is sacrificed with, well, I have so many other things I need to do. And we sit there and we stare at our phone for an hour. The greatest balance of priorities you and I can make in this life is to prioritize the things of God. Everything else needs to fit in that fr- around that framework. That this is who I am. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And everything else, because I'm a bunch of other things, right? That all has to fit. I don't know about you, but I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, 
I happen to also be a husband, a dad, a pastor, a, sometimes a ball coach, a this, a that. But it all has to come underneath. What are you first and foremost? A disciple of Jesus Christ. And that informs the decisions that I make as I seek to live for the kingdom of God. That's what we all have to do. And so, here come these men with these Greeks and say, you know, they, they go to Jesus and say, hey, there's some Greeks here that want to see you. We presume that's what happened here because doesn't told they bring, he brings them there. And then we see that Jesus begins to talk to them about salvation's price. And Jesus answered, that, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In verse 23, Jesus says that there is the, the arrival of salvation has come. So, Andrew and Philip relay the request of the Greeks to Jesus. And with this request, Jesus now reveals that the culmination of his earthly ministry is imminent. Now, we're not told here, it's interesting, we're not told here to whom necessarily Jesus is speaking. It seems like he's talking to the disciples. And at first, that, that may seem odd, right? That Jesus, John doesn't record Jesus directly addressing those Greeks who came seeking him. But he does show us that the Greeks seeking Jesus is an important thing in the next step of his earthly ministry. Jesus indicates this with his statement. He says in verse 23 that the hour of his glorification has come. Now, perhaps you remember that statement because throughout the book of John we've seen that a few times. But the statement always went like this. My hour has not yet come, right? Or when, some, when people tried to stone him or kill him, he, he, he slipped away. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. There's the shift in verse 23. What does that tell us? The hour has come. The time has come for the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. The time has come for him to fulfill the work that was appointed to him by God the Father. Jesus wouldn't perform that until the hour had come. And now, with the Greeks seeking Jesus, the time is upon him. And Jesus' statement here isn't referring to only Jews or Greeks, but is referring to all those who come to him in faith, as he talks about here. The Son of Man would be glorified, and that his death would bear much fruit. Jesus saw his glorification at hand, and to those Jews standing by listening, they most likely assumed that meant he was preparing to overthrow the Romans. Because again, remember, in their minds, the messianic hopes and dreams, right? He's going to overthrow the Roman government, so the glorification has come, Woohoo! here we go, new kingdom, right? And once he did that, in their minds, he would be glorified, he would sit upon the throne, he would rule them as the Messiah. But this is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Because before the crown was to come the cross. And Jesus expounds here on the prerequisites for that glorification. In verse 24, he states that there is life from death. Jesus would be glorified. And he would be exalted by God the Father. But before he could do that, Jesus had to pay salvation's price. Jesus gives a statement once again that's introduced here as a sure and secure fact. That's what you have here in verse 24 where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he says here is without death, there is no life. The glorification of Jesus wasn't to come through the overthrow of an empire. It was instead to come through his own death and resurrection. And Jesus here speaks to the disciples in in a picture that comes from farming. When you farm, seeds must be placed into the ground. And in a sense, that seed has to die, does it not? It has to cease becoming a seed that it may grow into whatever it is you've planted. In the same way, there can be no life, no fruit, no glorification of Jesus without his death. Isaiah prophesied this of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, I want you to consider this picture of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, where it talks about it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's the Messiah. It was his will that his soul would make an offering for guilt. And I want you to think back to the Old Testament pictures of offering for guilt. What does that involve? It involves death, right? The death of the lamb or whatever animal was. And then it says, he shall see his offspring. Now, typically, when someone dies, we don't think of them seeing any more offspring, right? Let me just illustrate it from my own life. My grandmother, my my dad's mom, passed away a little over three months before the birth of our first child, before Caleb was born. And though my cousins had children before me, my grandmother never witnessed the birth of any great-grandchildren from my dad's side of the family. She's with the Lord. She knew Jesus Christ as her Savior, but I don't think of her as, as seeing these things, right? She's with him in eternity. But with Jesus, it's much, much different. The only way for there to be children of God for Jesus to see was that Jesus had to die. For like a seed planted in the ground, Jesus didn't stay in the ground after his death. He rose again. And he would see these children come into God's family for he would rise again. One author said it this way, Jesus' death will reap a great harvest. We've seen this before. Sin demands a price. Forgiveness has a cost. And Jesus died so that the price and cost of sin would be paid. As Jesus told Nicodemus, this is how it was going to go. We read this in our scripture reading this morning in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The glorious and eternal kingdom of God could not be established without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The adoption of the sons of God found its roots in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The cross was always going to precede the crown. That was the mission of Jesus Christ. These Greeks who came seeking Jesus were a preview of the harvest that was to come. And though the price would be high, and though the suffering would be great, the Lord was prepared to fulfill the plan of God. And his sacrifice for us cannot be understated. 
He died that we might live. He gave himself willingly in our place. The world has rejected God. The world has turned to sin and away from his goodness. You and I were born in sin, a part of that. Yet, he is faithful to offer redemption in Jesus Christ. And it comes at his own great expense on our behalf. What a love. What a cost. You can stand forgiven at the cross. That's a great and wonderful truth. But just as the cost of salvation is high, we must understand too what Jesus says here, that the cost of discipleship is also, is also high. Because Jesus now goes on to talk about salvation's call. In verse 25, he talks about what it means to embrace Jesus, to embrace himself. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' death and resurrection are not common events. Now, I understand that that perhaps you have grown up in church and you have heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus your entire life. Maybe you had parents who talked to you over and over and over again about the gospel from a very early age. And so in your mind, you think, well, yeah, it's common because I've heard about it a lot. My friend, it is not a common thing that someone would come who is the son of God, God incarnate, give himself in willing sacrifice and rise from the dead three days later. These are life-altering, world-changing, phenomenal events. And in the same way, trusting in Jesus for salvation is a life-altering decision that one is faced with. Sadly, the message of salvation has over the years sometimes become this one that's full of easy believism, if, if I can say it that way. Hey, you know what? Just pray this prayer after me. Repeat this. Say these words. These are things that are the modern day message of many. And the invitation has become, you know what? Just add Jesus into your life and you'll be okay. What did we say before? Disciples prioritize the things of Jesus. The cost of discipleship is high. Jesus was clear. It is a complete faith, trust, and life you are giving to him. Embracing Jesus is exclusive trust and commitment to him. If you don't believe me, just look at the verbiage Jesus uses here. He tells us that the only way to find life in him is to what? What does he say? You must do what with your life here? You must must hate your life. Does that shock you a little bit? You have to hate your life. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. And what does he mean by that? Is Jesus calling for us to hate our existence and our lives? Well, certainly not. But he is speaking here of where our commitments, our allegiances, and our preferences lie. The one who prefers this life and the things of it cannot trust Jesus Christ for salvation. And the one who loves this world and this temporal life so much that he cannot let go of it will lose his life in eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Loving one's life, as Jesus speaks of here, is at its core, by the way, denying the sovereignty of God. It is elevating oneself, saying, look, I know what you say, God, but I'm in charge. 
I'm going to live my life my way, and I'll have you on my terms, and I'll do my thing. And Jesus says, that's not how this works. You have to give yourself wholly to trusting in me. My friend, you can have everything here this life has to offer. You can deny yourself no pleasure, no trinket, no satisfaction, no toy, no entertainment. You can have them all. You can chase everything our world promotes. And if you do, you will do so at your greatest expense. If you prefer this life to trusting in Jesus and declaring him Lord, you will one day die in your sin. And your eternity will be a dark one indeed. And I don't say this. This is not some scare you straight tactic that pastors use. This is the truth of the word of God. The only, it is only the one who hates this life, that will be able to keep his life for eternity. Again, one pastor said it this way. The way to love your life, as Jesus talks about here, is to focus exclusively on yourself. And the way to hate your life is to focus exclusively on Christ. You say, well, I mean, I, I don't hate Jesus, I don't love this life. I I do good things. Again, self-righteousness is focusing on yourself. It's not focusing on Jesus. You must set aside your own efforts of salvation. You must get rid of the mask of self-righteousness. You must detest the temporal pleasures sin offers you. You must throw all of these and yourself at the feet of Jesus. In him alone, your hope is found. In him alone, your life is one. In him alone is your salvation. And really, what good are your possessions, your experiences, and self-righteous acts if you come to the end of your life and do not have Jesus? Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What is the price of your soul? A bigger house, a better job, a fatter bank account, a guilty pleasure, the freedom to do what I want, people just leaving me alone. Whatever you think the price of your eternity is, it's not worth it. It's not. To embrace this life is to reject Jesus. To reject the sinfulness of this world is to embrace him. And in so doing, Jesus says disciples are called then to a different sort of living. In verse 26, he talks about how disciples are to live honorably for the kingdom of God. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the one who hates his life in exchange for loving Christ will find eternal life in Christ. And that eternal life comes with a new calling. It comes with the calling of the life of a disciple. The one who who serves Jesus is called to, as Jesus says here, follow Jesus. Now in Jesus' day, disciples quite literally followed their rabbi. You, You look at those callings of Jesus as he comes to those disciples. He tells them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They left their nets and followed him, right? That's literally what they did. 
They gave themselves to his teaching. They were learners. The word disciple literally means learner. And they are learners of the highest order. And so salvation brings with it a change of loyalties. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus never said salvation from sin brings perfection. He never said that. You know what Jesus did say? Salvation from sin brings a change of affections. Right? I've asked this before. I mean, how many of you who know the Lord wish that salvation equated with perfection, right? You know? Bingo bongo, you never sin again. Right? That's the magic pastoral words. Bingo bongo. Okay. Jesus never says, come to me and you'll never sin again. But what Jesus presents is those who truly place faith in Jesus Christ, the things that they love have changed. The, 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 the driving force of their life is different. If you are a disciple, a believer, a Christian, your desires are now to be tuned in to those that bring glory and honor to God. The same guy who was inspired to write here in John wrote in the first letter we call, that he wrote to, to the churches, his name is, or the name of the the epistle is 1 John. He wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Disciples are characterized by their loyalty and devotion to the things of God. If you live your life with divided loyalties, you cannot please God with your life. The choice to follow Jesus is a choice to leave behind the love of this world. It is a devotion to the things of God, even as you navigate this life. So God says, turn your heart away from the desires of different things. And I'll walk you through these verses very quickly, which I just had on the screen. I'll go back. He says here, to turn away your heart first from the desires of the flesh. And by the way, we, we were talking about this verse this morning in our Sunday school class. And the statement was made that sometimes this whole do not love the world thing is sometimes people equate that with, well, that's just what, you know, independent Baptists think or this person thinks. Where does that phrase, do not love the world, come from? Does it come from a pastor? No, it comes from God. He says right here in his word, do not love the world. And then he goes on to talk about what the things of the world are. First is the desire of the flesh. Our flesh wants so many things. It seeks pleasure. It seeks enjoyment. It seeks vice. And these things do not please God. God says to turn away from the desires of the flesh. He says then, turn away from the desires of our eyes. You and I, we live in a world given to the desires of of the eyes. If you are like me and you like to watch college football during the fall, you see that all the time. These ads, you know, you need this, you need that, right? Here's the new product, here's this. You need this TV or this car or this experience in your life. And it's intended to create within us a desire for the next new thing. They show us what we could have if we just spend a little money or if we hit it big in life. And here's the thing, friends. We, at our core, are inherently worshipers. That's how God made us to be. He created you to be a worshiper. 
And it doesn't matter what you say, you are a worshiper. And if you don't worship God, you worship something else. And the gifts that God has given to us on this earth to enjoy are wonderful indeed, but they are terrible gods. And so in our lives, God has called disciples to be worshipers of him by turning away from the desires of our eyes and instead pursuing him. And if we're not careful, we will worship our pursuits, our experiences, our possessions, our relationships. And then lastly in these verses, God tells us to put away the pride of life. Pride is the root of much sin in our lives. I was just having a conversation a few weeks ago with a friend of mine. Uh, he and I have been friends um, since I was in Atlanta. He's, he's, um, he works in, in the Baltimore area. And we were talking about, I don't remember what it was, but we have these discussions about things in the, in the Bible and things. And um, we were talking about something that happened. And he said, you know, what do you think about this? And, and we talked about it. And I gave him some thoughts. He said, we were just talking about this at a men's outing at our church. And I think it's pride. He said, I think it all goes back to pride. And I, I was, it's one of those statements that's so simple when you hear it. But it's so true. How many of the sins in our lives go back to our own pride, Right? We like to think ourselves responsible for the good things we do. We like to take credit for so many righteous acts. We like to be in control. We know what God says, but that doesn't suit me. We look at the Bible and we say, well, I know more than that. I don't need to pay attention to spiritual authorities in my life. What are we doing? We're living in our own pride. Disciples aren't called to live lives of pride. They're called to live lives of humility. That's the reflection of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't ever have nice things or experience incredible blessings along the way, right? Because I look out here and I see people, you've probably experienced wonderful things in your life, right? I hope you have at some point. Maybe you've enjoyed a nice possession or a great experience or this. That what Jesus is not saying here is, hey, cast off everything that, you know, if you think it's going to make you happy, don't do it, Right? But what is Jesus saying here? The priority is not on having the nice things, being on top, being right, or serving my agenda. My priority is I'm going to serve Jesus first, whatever it costs. And for the one who claims to be a disciple, there is a natural consequence if we live contrary to that claim. If you say, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I'm, I'm following him, and I'm a disciple, but you live completely opposite of that, I'm going to tell you this right now, you are going to struggle with whether or not you're truly a Christian. And that's just the natural consequence of that. If you say you're something, but you live completely different, you're going to be in question that in your heart, and your life. Now, it doesn't mean you don't struggle. I don't know about you, but I struggle with sin every day. I struggle with the flesh that I live with that wants to go back into the well-worn paths of sin and do wrong. It doesn't mean that we have to achieve some level of perfection to really be a disciple, right? That, hey, there's like an entry-level Christian, and then there's like disciples, and then there's, you know, right? Disciples are those who know Jesus Christ. But, and so in our lives... As a disciple, there should be consistency, 
right? There should be a pattern of, of making choices that please God. There should be a desire in our hearts, at least, to say no to sin and yes to doing that's what's right. And that desire doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God's regenerating work in our hearts. This is the proof of a disciple. And if you find in your life, you find yourself filled with worldly attractions, with sinful habits, and ridden with guilt, what do you do about it? Do you just press on and say, you know what, it'll figure itself out in the end? Do you push forward, hoping that God will overlook it and give you a pass? Do you cast those feelings aside and brush it off as someone else's opinion? Or do you thank the Lord for the conviction of sin and look for his help to make it right? Disciples always look for the next step spiritually. And disciples, Jesus says, are receivers of big promises. Jesus says in this verse two, two big things that will happen. Number one, he says here, where I am, there will my servant be also. This is the promise of heaven. Jesus died. The cross came as he predicted. But after that came the resurrection, the glorification of the only Son of God, and now he has ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and will one day bring all who are his home to heaven with him. That's a glorious promise. Jesus says, if you belong to me, your eternity is in heaven. And I find that very comforting because we live a life that's just dogged by sin, right? We groan at the brokenness and the sinfulness in our world. I mean, the things that you read in the headlines or on social media, do they ever just turn your stomach? The experiences you have when you're sitting there on your couch, just going through life, and temptation hits your heart and soul, does that just make you feel weighed down? Like, I shouldn't think this way anymore. I shouldn't say these things that I say. I shouldn't, and you just feel burdened by sin sometimes. The hope is this. This isn't it. You're just passing through. Your hope is in heaven. Because one day, all who know Jesus Christ will be with him, glorified and perfected. My friend, what a day that will be. That's what you get if you turn your back on the world and embrace Jesus Christ. That's what you get. Number two, Jesus says that God honors faithfulness to his son. Look at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Honor in our world is a wonderful thing. We honor military heroes. We honor public servants. We honor those who use their lives to make a world, the world a better place, right? Maybe you've been the recipient of one of these types of honor. Maybe you've honored someone else. You've, you've been a participant in, well, we gave this person that or this. We recognize them for that. And these are wonderful things, but they compare absolutely in no way to the honor that God gives to those who faithfully serve him. This life, the life of a disciple, is a hard life. It is a battle against sin it is a struggle to do right. It is a tension between submission to God and the sinful flesh we still have wanting to walk the old paths of sin. It is standing out from the crowd. It is going upstream in a sinful world. That doesn't sound like an easy life, does it? But it's a life that's worth it 
Because God honors faithfulness. I'm so glad that God doesn't honor perfection. Because I don't know about you, there'd be no honor for anybody, else, anybody in this world, would there? He honors those who faithfully submit themselves to following him. And if you do this, by the way, you will find a life of victory lived in his strength. You will find his wisdom for the decisions you need to make. You will find hope for the journey in him. You will find joy in serving him. And you will experience the blessing and honor of God in eternity. So here's the thing. Dying to self is worth it all. Jesus physically died to bring us eternal life. So let us turn our backs on the allure of this world that we may live for the glory of the eternal kingdom of God. Because Jesus died to pay the price of sin, I must find life in him by dying to self and placing undying faith in him alone. The pathway to eternal life for mankind was paved by the death of the eternal God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus The Son of God, the Word incarnate, the one who always has been and always will be, gave himself for you. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he lives to make intercession for all who place their faith and trust in him. Have you submitted your life and your faith to Jesus? I'm not talking about have you repeated some words said the right phrases, but have you actually transferred your trust from your actions, from your behavior modification, from your family heritage to I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone? Have you confessed your sin? Have you repented from it? Have you professed Jesus as Savior and Lord? That is the only way to salvation. You must see who you truly are. And as Jesus says, you must hate this life. You must turn your back on sin and embrace the Savior. The life of a disciple is a life of death. It is what we often say, dying to self daily. It is moment by moment making those decisions to not not live for me, but live for him. It is leaning on the Lord to say no to sin and yes to doing right. It is seeking the mind of Christ so that the things that appealed to your flesh in the past Do not appeal any longer. The life of a disciple isn't easy, but it's doable by the power of God. Count the cost of discipleship. Jesus counted the cost of salvation, and he endured it for all of us. And when he convicts us of sin and wrong, how can we seek to justify it with our own logic and reason? We must continue to submit, growing and changing ever more, into the image of God. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for our time to study it today. Thank you for the freedom we have to meet here to do so. And thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is because of what Jesus did that we can proclaim the hope of the gospel today. And I pray that you would use your word in our hearts today that you would convict us of sin, that you would draw us to yourself and help us to live for the glory of God.
Lord, we admit we are feeble, we are fickle, we are frail. But you, you know who we are. and You can do great and mighty things for and in us. Lord, I pray today you would give Christians willing hearts to reprioritize their lives and prioritize the things of God. That you would help us to not make excuses for why we don't serve you the way we know we should, but give us hearts that are broken and humble before you. Lord, be with one who may be here today who has never trusted you. Maybe they put on a show of salvation. Maybe they've said words to get somebody off their back. But they know they need you today. Lord, would you give them the courage and the boldness to come to you. Give them even the courage to speak to someone today that they may know you as their Savior and may see the things that you have said in your word on how they can be in the family of God. We ask that you would continue your work in, this, in our hearts as we leave this place today. Will you bring us back here tonight to worship you? In your name we pray.